Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. This is the last episode in my series of interviews that I've been posting that are loosely related to the themes in my book, Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. This week, we're exploring the theme of expecting the end of the world. I was really excited about this interview in particular, which I recorded when other things felt like the end of the world, when now we have the crisis in Ukraine, hanging over our heads, but I still found so much of the interview applicable to how we're feeling and what we're thinking now. But I was really excited about this particular interview because I was totally electrified by the writing that I first discovered by this author. So the interview is with Paul Kingsnorth, and the first place I encountered him was in an essay in First Things called The Cross and the Machine, which was an essay-length account of his journey to Orthodox Christianity as he puts it, via Buddhism, witchcraft, and other strange twists. Kings North is perhaps best known as being the co-founder of the Dark Mountain Project, which was a writing uh, collective that was kind of oriented around the idea of eco-pessimism, which was the idea that we really have kind of destroyed the world beyond, um, destroyed the natural world beyond a state of repair, and so how do we live in light of that. So you can see why I might have picked him, picked this particular interview um, for this week's chapter. But Paul has done many things. He is a poet. He wrote a novel almost entirely in uh, old, uh, I think it's old English, old middle English. Um, and more recently, he has had his kind of radical views um, <laughs> radicalized in new ways by his conversion to Christianity, which I think he is still in many ways working out the implications of. But I really loved getting to talk to Paul because what I love in his writing is this kind of relentless, uh, relentless desire both to prize what is precious and good and meaningful and divine in life, that inherent sense we all have that there is beauty and meaning in our relationships, in nature, that the world is more alive than we sometimes give it credit for, but also a relentlessness in facing the kind of brokenness and depravity of the world and this kind of um, this desire to live with integrity within it in a way that is oftentimes kind of shrugged off as impossible in other writers. So I really enjoyed getting to talk to Paul about what it looks like and what it means for us to try to live well um, in the many, many apocalypses that we experience in the modern world. He reminds me a bit uh, in spirit of Rich Mullins. And it was uh, a real delight to get to have this conversation with Paul. And now that it's a few months on, I can tell you um, at the end of the discussion, we talk about the novel Loris by Eugene Vodolaskin. And uh, I have now read it. It is excellent. And I would recommend reading it, although it is a bit gory because it's medieval and things were just a bit more messy back in those times. But that is also a book about, um, about people who lived at a time when they thought the end of the world was coming. So if you need a little extra artistic exploration of that theme, go check out Loris by Eugene Vodolaskin. 
And, um, and then see, he has a few books actually coming out with Plow Quarterly, who I work for, and their book segment. So do check that out as well. But without further ado, I give you this interview with Paul Kingsnorth. Today, we have a guest that I've been looking very forward to having on the show. He is an interesting uh, author who works out the complications and the frustrations of modern life very personally, but in a way that I found very um, relatable and profound. Uh, that is Paul Kingsnorth. Um, welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me on. So, Paul, you've done many, um, you've had many interesting twists and turns in your life. Uh, you have been everything from an environmental activist to, have you been a poet? I was trying to, I was realizing, I don't know if you... I have been a poet. I have two poetry collections out. Whether they're any good is another question, but technically I am a poet, yes. Great, because I had that, I said that you had been an environmental activist, a poet, um, a pagan, and most recently um, a Christian. Um, mm. But then I, I wasn't sure if I was right about the poetry, so I'm, I'm glad that that intuition was correct. Uh, no, I think, I think the poetry came before all the others, actually, interestingly. Really? Really? Maybe it's the heart of things. Mm. What, what kind of poetry did you begin loving? Uh, well, that's a good question. I think, um, actually, the first poet I really liked was Wordsworth, who I had to read at school, um, because mm. uh, what I read in Wordsworth was this uh, great, profound love of the wild sublime, this romantic attachment to nature, which I'd experienced myself in my life, but I didn't know how to put it into words, and I didn't know anyone else ever had. And mm. then I read Wordsworth writing 200 years before. And even though the language was antiquated, I thought, wow, I, this is exactly what I feel. So that was um, that kind of took me down. I think before then, I'd, I'd probably imagined that poetry is um, not something that would speak to the likes of me, but it, it did ever since then. So then I spent most of my teenage years and student years writing terrible poetry in imitation of other poets I liked <laughs> eventually found a voice I think so it's not great poetry but it's it's actually the most satisfying mm. form of writing for me actually mm. yeah I I think everyone has to write terrible poetry imitation of other poets before they can ever actually be a good poet themselves yeah it's, it's necessary and you have to send some of it to your girlfriends as well in, in, let, <laughs> in letters that you will later be a, a very embarrassed about Luckily, I grew up before the internet, so none of this is online, oh, so it's all right. Lucky you, Paul. Um, I, yeah. for, I forgot this, but now that you just said that, um, am, I, am I right in saying that you're currently homeschooling your children? Yes, although my wife is doing most of it, to be fair. All right, well, when you said Wordsworth, I remembered that we have another connection, which is that I was, I was homeschooled all throughout my, my growing up years, and my parents were uh, kind of odd about it. You know, there's quite a movement in America generally kind of two segments they didn't really fit into either one and one of my earliest educational memories was memorizing wordsworth mm. and um and That's so cool. yeah no it was and i i quite liked wordsworth and i think that the the kind of familial sharing of poetry and ideas and love of nature um was something that resonated with my family um mm. but yeah wordsworth is quite good all right so you started as a poet give us a general sense of the arc of your life? Well, um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't find my life very interesting, really. I think it looks more interesting from the outside. Um, <laughs> maybe lives tend to. I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up in a very, I don't know what normal is, but I grew up in, I suppose, quite a normal suburban English family. My parents were both from London, so my family were from London, really, over the last um, century or so, quite working class. And then by the time I came along, I suppose, sort of, 
lower middle class, you know, sort of suburban, um, comfortable, okay, but not rich and not poor. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, I suppose the thing that I always talk about this a lot, but I mean, I used to just go on a lot of long walks, especially with my dad. He used to drag me across the mountains when I was young, which I didn't necessarily always enjoy very much at the time because <laughs> he was a bit of a route marcher. He used to make me walk 25 miles a day when I was 10. Um, so I don't know how I survived that. Um, but, you know, all of our family used to go camping and walking. Both my parents were great nature lovers. My dad is dead, but my mother is alive and she is still a great lover of nature. So that was in a very kind of unpretentious way, none of my family were kind of, you know, philosophers or writers or anything like that, didn't have anyone like that in my in my background, but just in a very kind of practical, everyday sense, they had a great sense of um, just a kind of attachment to the natural world, really, which I did too. You go up in a suburb and then uh, you go off and walk in the mountains of Scotland or Northern England, it's kind of a whole other world. You see all sorts mm. of things that you never imagined were there. And so that was very influential to me, really. And then when I went off to university, um, that, uh, you know, as, as often happens, combined combined with all the, the poetry and the, the romanticism was, was, was a kind of politics, an activist politics at the time. It was the 90s. So there was a very activist green movement around. And I sort of politicized it, I suppose. My, my love of nature became politicized. It became attached to a desire to protect it from destruction because everywhere you looked then as now it was being destroyed so I wanted to do something about that so I became a, an excitable hot-headed young kind of activist lots of direct action lots of um, politics um, and that kind of yeah that sort of defined my 20s really in my early 30s a lot of uh, I managed to combine the words that I liked writing with the activism that was important to me and I became a kind of environmental activist and a journalist and I uh, ended up being deputy editor of the ecologist magazine and i worked for ngos and i did all sorts of other stuff um hmm. really yeah and that was um that was what that was what i mean it still sort of does define me actually because if i if i try to find a theme in everything i write it is that our connection or our lack of connection to the rest of nature hmm. and how that ties in with human community both of which seem to be extremely broken in the modern hmm. west you know our connection to the rest of life and our connection to our sense of place and community and culture it's all kind of it's all shattered and we're in we're in tiny little individualistic shards in this giant machine that we all live in and mm. um that's been getting more and more intense all of my life and so i've just been exploring i suppose all of my work in all sorts of different ways is really just it's, it's the same thing actually it's just digging into that story that's the only story i seem to be capable of writing mm. and it's you know how do we get to a point where we felt so cut off mm from nature and so cut off from culture and, and, and place and history almost. Hmm. And I suppose in, in more recent years I've come to see that quite explicitly as a, as a spiritual crisis actually. I think it's not about politics or culture or economics. Those are all things that are aspects of it. But actually deep, deeper than that, it's a, it's a spiritual crisis. It's about who we are and what the world is and what our relationship to it is. Hmm. So that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a potted history of my entire life. Hmm. two minutes there it is <laughs> <laughs> yes I mean it's impossible isn't it to to give a sense of the both very quotidian nature of life but also the deep profound themes that come in and out but um, yeah I think that's why I uh, connected immediately with some of your writing is I think most of us who were lovers of nature in some way have felt kind of a 
a homesickness, and I think this comes up a lot in your writing, a homesickness for something we haven't quite experienced. Mm. You know, the sense that we should be more in tune, more connected with nature. And we have these moments, and with each other, we have these moments of recognition, moments of experiencing it, but then they're fleeting. And the more we kind of try to grab at them, the more they seem to, to go away. And um, for me, I often think of, um, I've, I thought I would ask you this because you remind me. Have you ever heard of the artist Rich Mullins? Hmm, I don't know. I think I might have heard the name, but not more than that. Well, um, I'll, I'll send you some things afterwards, uh, which you may or may not listen to. But uh, he was a, a singer in the 90s and um, that I grew up listening to. And he wrote, he would take these motorcycle trips across you know, the most barren places in America where you just think of it as kind of um, the same thing over and over again. And he'd write these beautiful poetic lyrics. And I remember listening to it and feeling like he caught something essential in that kind of the pungency of nature, that there's something beyond, that there is what we see and it is good and important, but there's also something beyond or within. And even as a little girl, I remember feeling that, that ache that I didn't want to go away, that most of life kind of made you want to take away, if that makes sense, you know, most of the modern world. Um, and it seems like that's something is, that seems like what you are always pondering in some sense. I don't, I, you know, that's my own articulation of it, but. Yeah, right. I think so. I think yeah. so. And that, you know, that, that brings us back to Wordsworth again, doesn't it? Because yeah. when I talk, when I read Wordsworth when I was like 16 or something, um, that was what I recognized in it, this thing that he called the sublime, you know, mm -hmm. these stories that he told um, about connecting with this and he he also trying to put it into words and whether or not you like Wordsworth as a poet, you can still see that in what he's trying to do. Certainly as a younger poet anyway, he's really trying to, again, he's just, he's had these immense powerful experiences as a child or a man in the Lake District and he's trying to, trying to grasp at them and yeah. philosophize about and put them into it and he can't really because nobody can. We can only ever sort of like you say, you can touch the edges of them, but that's exactly it. You see, and it's, it's it was, but it was frustrating for me after a while to become an activist, an environmental activist, because a lot of political and you know activist sort of talk, a lot of the approach is very utilitarian. I mean, necessarily so sometimes, you know, because people are trying to do practical change, and that's all fine, and it's got to be done. But you know, I didn't become an environmental activist so I could talk about carbon emissions you know it was it was because i wanted to protect that the places that contained that essence that's that sublime whatever it is um you know and it was so obvious to me that that's a need of the human soul hmm. and that we've got a culture that just trashes it and and who cares about carbon emissions really i mean that's it's not the issue okay it matters and hmm. everything but that's just that's kind of machine speak so we've created this society which even when it looks at the uh, at a forest or a sunset hmm or an ocean can't look at it through the eyes that you're talking about or mm. the eyes that Wordsworth was trying to reach at it looks at it like a machine or a calculator mm. or, a, or an economist or any of this mm. stuff and we you know we look out the ocean and we think how how much wind power there is that we could harvest or mm. you know we look at the desert and think about the sunlight or it's it's, it's not the point there's something mm. beyond you and, and actually I think you know most most people who become activists know that as well that's why mm. they're kind of not all of them, but most of them. But we all get sucked into this, this kind of mechanistic way of speaking and seeing. And we're mm. all told that, of course, that that's what the grown-ups do. Mm -hmm. We have to leave behind all the silly Wordsworthian stuff and go mm -hmm. towards being a grown-up. And I think I probably just never wanted to be a grown-up, actually. Mm, yeah. 
<laughs> but I don't think you should. I don't think you should be that kind of grown up, actually, because it's a, it, it's a, it's the particular kind of cold rationalism that this society presents as as maturity. It's not maturity. It's a kind of spiritual infantilization. I think you know we're missing mm. something really big that real working cultures in the past have been able to grasp. And as I said, mm. I think it's a spiritual matter to use that massive, impossible to describe word. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. No, I think you're right. And um, it's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Because what you describe is this passionate love of the precious things in nature, um, whatever that is. And then your desire to protect that then caused you to feel frustrated. It reminds me of um, another lover and protector of the good things in nature. Wendell Berry has this quote that has always stuck with me. Um, I can't remember the exact... Um, phrase, but he says basically it's been possible for us for a long time to imagine that the world could be um, split into small parts and sold, basically, that we could calculate, that we could know what profit was. And the more that we do that, the more we increase our proximity to despair. Mm. And um, and that's what I really see when I look at the world, as I see this increasing proximity to despair. You know, the more that you look at an ocean and you divide it up into um, and little bits, the, the less you, you know, you don't do that with, if we think about this with other things that cause us awe, if we were to look at our, our romantic partner and like try to divide them up into what made them uh, worth investing and worth being faithful to, um, it would it would increase our proximity to despair because there's something about the inherent value of the thing that we love mm. that should, it's, it's almost unholy to try to, to break it down into spare parts. And it sounds like that was something that you um, kind of experienced. And you, you seem to describe this as your your overriding metaphor is the machine. Is that right? Yeah, I'm writing a lot about that at the moment because it just seems like the best way to describe the world we're living in. And plenty of other great writers from, you know, from Aldous Huxley to D.H. Lawrence have used that word as well. Um, there's a, There's been a sense since the Industrial Revolution in the West and pretty much everywhere now that we are living inside this giant mechanism that we've mm. created. We've got to the point where we're serving it rather than the other way around. In fact, probably got to that point a long time ago, but it's, it's just increasingly obvious now. Mm. We can't, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously parts in this machine now. You know, mm. it's barely possible to function without a smartphone or the internet in a way that it wasn't even 10 years ago. Um, and you're going to be excluded from vast parts of society if you don't yeah turn everything into a saleable commodity but it's exactly that 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 notion of di division that's really really good and really important and, and Wendell Berry is great on that he's one of the best writers around on this um and it's telling of the time that we live in that there are more people like him you know mm -hmm. and that he's he's regarded as this kind of um outsider when what what he writes to me is just obvious common sense <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't seem to be regarded as that by most most of the culture, but we are in we are in this society that does that. Um, I wrote an essay years ago about science, and I I looked into the etymology of the word science, and it has the same etymology as the word schism, and the word mm. sickle, and the word sex, actually, because they're all about division. Mm. Science is about dividing things up and looking at the little parts, and as you say, turning everything into particularities in a way that, yes, absolutely, when we look at it, we realise it's a stupid way of looking at the world. You would never do that with your children or your partner. But we do think it's fit, at some level, to do it with the rest of the world, including when we're talking about the the living earth, which we persist in calling the environment or resources or all of these other horrible words. 
and it's it is literally diabolic actually because the, the word i think the word diabolic comes from this has the same meaning diabol means to to divide mm. to set apart it's what the devil does right he divides mm. things he divides it from god so so it's literally a devilish way of seeing, actually, because mm -hmm. you, if you want to start to split things up into their tiny little parts, mm. you can make an argument for anything. You know, you can mm. make an argument for eugenics, you can make an argument for the destruction of forests, you can make an argument for uh, Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, which we're all going to be living in in a few years, apparently. We're looking forward to that. Just uh, pop off and see your girlfriend as a hologram rather than the real thing, which would probably suit Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> apparently, down to the ground. <laughs> You might prefer the hologrammatic version of him, I don't know, but I mean that's the, that's the inevitable place it takes us, you see. So this machine, the way I understand it, is once you see like that, once you decide that that's an acceptable way of seeing the world, and it's pretty much the Western way of seeing, then you're inevitably on, on the path towards the Matrix, or some mm. form of brave new world. You know, there's, there's a reason that science fiction writers have been putting out these prophetic warnings for over a hundred years of where this stuff's going to lead us. It's not rocket science. We can all see where we're going to end up and we're going very fast into it now mm. we're going very fast into it i don't know if you saw that metaverse launch that mark zuckerberg did the other day i was i was flying oh. over the ocean but my brother um has it was been launching. I, I didn't watch the video because it's just i can't bear it but i, I read the statement and it's like it's, it's like it's written by a 12 year old oh yeah an excitable 12 year old who wants to be a hologram and, and the whole world's going to be fantastic and we're all going to be in our flying cars and these guys are running the world you know, this, this is the way it is. So that's, it's like a sort of, it's like we're living in a myth. It's like we're living in the Tower of Babel or we're living in mm. some ancient myth about what happens when you decide to um, not see the wood for the trees and try to take control of everything. It's, mm. or, or it's like we're back in the Garden of Eden just trying to eat the apple again. Mm. The same old story, you know, but that's, that's where we're going. So that's where the machine is taking us. Once you mistake the machine for life, which we've done, mm. then that's where you end up. And I think there's something in, something in the Western mind, perhaps, or the modern mind, that has kind of blinded us to the real stuff and, and decided to tell us that this is reality and it's not. And we're going into this spectacle, as the situationists called it, hmm. and we think it's real. You know, we think mm -hmm. that this big show is the real thing, and we're we're fighting to defend it even as it as it, as it trashes things. Hmm. Yeah, I think the thing I often think about machines is. A machine is merciless, you know, I, there, there is, it doesn't, it tramples things, it, it put, it has cogs and gears, and you're either a part of it, or you're going to be crushed, and it's in its way. Um, a really vivid picture of this to me was, uh, this is a silly thing, but I was, I watched some late sleepless night when I was jet lagging, I watched the Planet Earth documentary, and there was the section on where it was talking about, you know, the, the wild chaos of, of, um, you know, the rainforest and that there's kind of all of these, you, you can't calc like I'm sure if you tried and tried and tried, you calculate it, but there's all of these overlapping systems that feed into the diversity of what life is in a rainforest. Um, but so you had this picture of it and it was beautiful. It's interesting, almost comic. You know, you realize that like the fact that an orangutan, I think it was orangutan takes 10 years to teach its baby how to eat contributes to the diversity because it's pooping all over the, the rainforest. And, you know, and there's yeah. this just kind of, chaos but people can't calculate chaos they can't calculate how much money you can make off of an orangutan teaching its baby how to eat for 10 years and so then you see this great these huge palm forests and that's to me this picture of the machine versus life you know if you want to call it that that you know a palm forest you can count 
how much money you can make off of a palm forestry. You can count uh, what it will take, what resources it'll take. But in doing that, you also bring quite literally death. You know, you bring a lack of life um, precisely because you've tried to bring this thing under your control. Um, and of course, one of the big themes that you've been talking about as well is that this way of looking at the world is really a, a spiritual disease. Um, I was thinking that when I've read your, your work, one of the words that comes to mind is disease. Hope that's not insulting, but in the sense of, <laughs> of dis-ease, like that there's this kind of, this discomfort in the way that we find ourselves in the world. Um, so I would love to hear, yeah, your thoughts on how this is a spiritual, how this is and causes a spiritual dis-ease and what that means societally, but also how that's manifested for you in your own life and writing. Yeah, I mean, I wish I didn't have to write about diseases all the time. I'd like to, mm. I'd like to just write some happy stuff. Well, I'm probably not capable of it, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's a very diseased time. It's very difficult to, um, you know, I think, again, come back to Wendell Berry. I mean, he wrote that somewhere. I remember quoting him in one of my essays saying that, you know, this, he, he said, I thought when I first moved down to this farm that it would be possible to basically step back from the world and be a farmer and write some poetry but it hasn't been possible because you, the, the world is coming in at you all the time and, and everything that you know he's he's living down in Kentucky and he's not very far away from mountaintop coal mining and, mm. and mountaintop removal coal mining and all sorts of terrible stuff you can't if you have any kind of sensibility at all can't actually just hide away it's not possible um mm. it would be nice to I, I keep trying but <laughs> not, I keep getting dragged back in it's like the godfather <laughs> um, yeah, so the thing is, if you, I think I have never believed in the materialist story of the world. I mean, I've never been conventionally religious until quite recently, which surprised me. I wasn't <laughs> brought up that way, um, and so I don't have any sort of education that's, that's specifically given me a spiritual framework. But it's just always been obvious to me that the materialist story, that the world and the universe are just the material that we can see and measure and there's no meaning to it and it's all very Nietzschean and Darwinian. I never believed in that. I didn't know quite what I did believe instead, but it's related to those kind of sublime experiences I've had that so many of us have had. That mm. once you start to pay attention, you can see the world is much bigger than you and you can see there are things going on that you don't understand. And actually, you know, there's plenty of emerging science that will show you that the world is much more complex than you think as well. Um, I'm always fascinated by the quantum notion that if you observe a particle or a quark or whatever it is, it behaves differently. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, if that's true, then the entire nature of reality is upended. If the universe behaves differently at the micro level when you look at it, when an intelligence looks at it, then the universe is intelligent in some way, then it's mm -hmm. sentient. And I think that's obviously true. I think I've always believed that even before I could put it into words. Not believed it because that makes it sound conceptual, just felt it was true. So I've always had that sense, that, and that's broadly, very broadly, if you want to use that word, it's a spiritual understanding of the world. So if you have that, I mean, if, if, if it's the case that the Earth is very much more sentient and aware than we think it is, which is true, I think it's obviously true, and I think it's something that a lot of older cultures knew before we came along with our, with our modernity and imagined we could measure everything. Um, if, you, if you believe that, then the destruction of that, the, the severing of us from the rest of the world, the ending of what Thomas Berry called the great conversation between people mm. and everything else that lives is a spiritual crisis, mm. right? And it's a spiritual crisis that affects everything. I mean, we've got this cultural 
cultural collapse going on in the West, it seems to me, this culture war, all of these horrible arguments all the time. And, you know, what's a culture? A culture is, a culture at its centre is, is an understanding of what the universe is and how people's mm. place is, is to be measured. And that's the spiritual question. And pretty much all cultures are built around some notion of God or the divine um, or our relationship to nature and usually all of those. We're pretty much the only culture I've ever heard of in history that believes there's nothing divine, there's nothing above us, and that nature is just a resource that we can measure and control. And that's just a spiritual catastrophe, and it's also going to lead us into into hell, probably, into a spiritual understanding of what that is, you know, a severing of, of ourselves from culture and nature. Um, and we'll have to turn around from that, and I think a lot of people are already starting to turn around from it, which is why we're having conversations like this. A lot of people can see that this isn't true. But it's very difficult to escape from it because we're in it. We're in the, we're in a kind of accelerated, advanced stage of this machine society in which, yeah. as things go wrong, as more and more things go wrong, because of what we're doing, we just clamp down harder. We used to, we try to use more measurement and control and clamp downs and yeah. and technologies. And it's always technology is going to save us from the problem that technology caused. And we're just going to have to go through that till it all falls apart. And then maybe we can wake up again to what. What we were, what we were missing, which mm. is, just as I say, it's that spiritual component of things. Because I don't think any culture can survive very long if it pretends that all of that is true. I just, mm. you know, I think it's very obvious that that's what's going on at the moment. But it's very hard to know what to do about it when you're in the middle of it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's something that puzzles me. Is that when I look at the world, I think um, most people either feel you know, I think you're very articulate about this, you know, disease that we're all experiencing. But most people feel it on some level. I think there is a sense that things are not as they should be. Um, but something that is curious to me is, is whether or not there will be a turn back to this way of seeing the world. And, um, and if there's not right now, what is preventing people from, from moving toward, toward that, if that makes sense? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I certainly don't think there's going to be a big voluntary, you know, love fest in which we all turn into the age of Aquarius and improve things. I mean, they tried that in 1968. It looked like it was going to be fun for a while. But um, <laughs> no, we're not. And there's not. We're, we're all locked into this system. Um, mm. I mean, some of us more than others. Actually, those of us in the West who are beneficiaries of it, most obviously, mm. are also most tightly locked into it. So it's mm. very hard for pretty much anyone in the Western world now or in any advanced part of the world, so-called to live in any kind of self-sufficient way you know mm. if we want to walk away from the machine I and mean, we can you can do it a bit i mean i've got a bit of land and i've got friends who you know live without electricity and there you can go and live in a caravan you can you can do it if you want mm. to you can be a monk you can secede um but it is hard because as, as we said earlier you know we're all just so locked into it every day mm. and more and more so the more the technological matrix controls everything the more it's mm. impossible even to have a bank account without having a smartphone Mm. And to have a smartphone, you need electricity, and then you have to pay the bills, so then you need a job, etc., etc. <laughs> We're all locked into it. It's very, very hard to escape. You can do it, but it's harder. Um, well, so we feel we feel we feel like we need to defend it, you know, because mm. it's what it's what we are. We're also defend. We're also dependent on the machine. Mm. That the, the prospect of it ending or starting to break down is frightening. You know, mm. it is frightening if the electricity goes out or things start to stumble or the internet suddenly doesn't work. There's a whole generation of people who can't imagine the world without the internet. <laughs> you know, the, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. So you're, you're kind of stuck. You're stuck in it to some degree, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, I think 
it's what you're describing is kind of an end of the world. If it's not the end of the world, mm -hmm. it is it is an end of the world. And I think something that everyone needs to be thinking about more deeply and strategically and faithfully is what does it look like to live at this end of the world? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At this at this particular moment and in this particular juncture. And um, and I think that, you know, all the things you were just describing are all kind of pragmatic uh, responses to the machine. Right. They are. How can I disconnect myself from the machine financially? All those, all those things. But I think there's also, as you were describing, um, and this seems like in, in Strange Gods, which you wrote, when did you write Strange Gods? Was that 2019? Uh, Savage Gods. Savage, Savage Gods. Gods. That's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was, um, well, I wrote it in 2017, and I think it, got, I think it was published in 2019. Hmm. That's always the dangerous things about books, isn't it? You write them, and then they take a few years to come yeah. out. By the time they come out, you've forgotten what you wrote. And I know. <laughs> then you have um, to do a book tour. Yeah. I know, I know. And then you have to remember what you wrote, and then everyone has to ask you the same thing 20 times. Um, but in Savage Gods, pardon me, um, it seems like one of the things you wrestled with was that kind of describes your moving moving to Ireland, right? And, um, and, and in many ways, that was your desire to both disconnect from the machine in some way um, and also kind of get in touch with something fundamental. And... For you, those things seem to be tied both to nature, but also to language. And something that seems throughout the book to be a frustration is that you are in some ways, you know, disconnected from the machine more than you might usually be. Um, but you seem frustrated. There's like this frustration and an inability to kind of link that that spiritual piece, but also the sense that, and I, I always want to write Wendell Berry a letter about this, that, you know, all of us lovely uh, people who grew up somewhere in a urban setting, you know, in some suburb somewhere, we have a sense that we ought to have an ancestral farm, mm. but then we don't have one. And so and so we're just kind of permanently a little bit uh, homesick for a ancestral land we've never had. And so there's that sense of alienation, both from wanting to belong to a land, but going I'm just going to arbitrarily choose a place to live. You know what I mean? That's that's something I've often thought about. I could move back. For me, it would be moving back to the closest thing to ancestral land would be 200-acre farm or um, ranch in the middle of Texas that my grandfather bought because he wanted to have oil wells, you know. So that would be a bit depressing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, there's that sense of, okay, well, we can, we can sever the ties um, – in a practical way, we can try to make ourselves more sustainable, but there's still that spiritual, psychological sense of rootlessness or homelessness. Mm. Um, do you feel like that has been more resolved in your life? And if so, what has resolved it? Or do you think that's an ongoing pebble in your shoe? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that was that was one of the things that I was writing about in the book. I mean, it's, I absolutely. I mean, I just think that modernity makes us homeless. You know, mm -hmm. the machine makes us homeless because I. The way that humans have lived for 99.9% of their history has been in fairly small groups of people, mm -hmm. usually rooted in a place, and it's usually the place their ancestors have come from. Mm -hmm. I mean, not always. There are nomadic cultures, and people have migrated, and things have mm -hmm. happened. But broadly speaking, people have led a much more integrated life, integrated into nature and culture, which really mm -hmm. are the same thing. And it's really only since the Industrial Revolution in any numbers that, mm. you know, millions and millions of people, and most of the people now in the West, including me and you by the sound of it, <laughs> have grown up in these kind of rootless urban communities. I mean, my family have been from London for centuries. As I say, I could go further back and I'd probably have some farmers down in Kent or something, but Kent is, you know, 
the southeast of England is full of lorry parks and, and giant uh, suburbs now. And even if I wanted to buy some land there, I'd have to be a millionaire, and I don't. So there's nowhere to go. I haven't got any farming land. I could probably find some ancestral graves in a churchyard somewhere, but there's nothing I feel connected to at all. So yes, absolutely, you make a sort of arbitrary choice, and I've come to a country I have no ancestry in because it was affordable and I had a few friends here and it seemed like a good place to hide and and it was uh, smaller and less developed in some ways um, but uh, you know I've and in many ways I do feel at home here you know and uh, people have been very welcoming I've got a lot of good friends here I'm very glad I came mm. so it actually does feel like my home now but mm. I don't feel like I belong here in a, a deeper sense no mm. because you can't uh, and it's exactly that and I just feel that yeah, the, everyone. I, I wrote a piece about this in my essay series. I wrote a piece about Simone Weil, the French writer mm. who wrote this called "The Need for Roots," which is a very good book that she wrote in the Second World War. And she was looking into what it meant to be European and what what would happen after the Nazis were defeated in France. And she wrote. She, she was, you know, very much a woman of the left, but she wrote about the importance of roots and um, how deracination, you know, the uprooting of people, is just psychologically and spiritually it's, it's a disaster and pretty much everyone is uprooted now you know i mean there are these huge waves of migration going on across the world massive migrations into europe even the people who come from europe as as you say are uprooted as well america's all uprooted everyone's moving around and this is this is said to be the you know the great global village being created but it's not it's like nobody belongs anywhere and it's like the great global airport it is it's the great global airport so wherever you come from you don't belong in, in the place that you're in, even if you come from that place. You know, you could, it doesn't matter in that sense. So the whole thing is a process of uprooting us because that's the way that capitalism works, right? That's how we become consumers rather than people. Mm. If we're not uprooted and unhappy, we're not gonna spend our money, mm. you know, because we, <laughs> we, we wouldn't need to buy all this crap. So we have to be uprooted and unhappy and the only thing that can solve our problems is the state or the corporation. Um, and that's where we've ended up. Yeah, so absolutely. And, and, and Wendell Berry is um, in some ways a lucky man from a very different generation who had a place mm. to go back to and who grew up there in the 30s, you know, where they were still mm. doing non-mechanized farming. So, you know, as he says himself, he's very much a throwback um, and he can point us back there, but we can't get back there ourselves. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's exactly that. It's that. So the, the question is, the answer, I suppose, is firstly, you just have to accept that because that's mm -hmm. where we are. You know, you can't make yourself, you can't be somebody you're not. You are, mm. you, are, you are just probably an uprooted urban person in the modern world, which most of us are. Mm. And then you see what you can do with that. And, mm. you know, all communities have to start somewhere and roots have to start somewhere. And you can put your roots down in a place mm. and grow new. So it's possible to, to start again. But, yeah, it's just hard. Everything militates against having any kind of small rooted mm. life close mm. to nature, which doesn't cost you money and, and doesn't require you to be online. You know, it's... Mm. Uh, the, whole world is moving in that direction but you know the good news is that it's not it's not sustainable so it won't be sustained <laughs> which means it's already starting to come apart yeah. and the more it comes apart the more options there are for starting to realize again what we got wrong about it and, and starting to live a bit differently hmm. yeah i think i think one of the things i ponder a lot is what it looks like i think to make decisions in the direction of rootedness, whatever that looks like, putting down new roots, you know, they may not be 400 year old roots, but you can begin, you can plant, your life can be a tree that might live to be 400 years old if you choose to live that way. But it is, it is upstream, you know, it is not what culture predisposes us towards. It wants all of us to be permanently 
um, movable. You know, I just finished a PhD, and the first thing that you that you're told when you finish a PhD is, well, you need to be ready to go wherever you can, you know, to get a job because um, that's what you have to do. And I think, I think that, you know, another component of this that we're describing is it's belonging to a place, but it's also belonging to people and becoming, you know, a good a good garden is one where the roots are intermingled and where you you make decisions, you make human decisions, you know, not just consuming decisions, but decisions that are about other people and about place and about hospitality. And, and while these problems can seem immense, and they are immense, I think in some ways, the solution, at least in individual lives, is very humane and human sized. It is trying to live as humane rather than mechanistic of a life as you can, to be willing to put down roots, to be someone who is hospitable and and to know that that will cost you something you know we can't all be to be an idealist means that sometimes your life will not be as easy as you wanted it to be you know but but that's a a a good thing sometimes um so so it sounds to me like you still have you you say i think it's me writing that you're no longer an activist but you still have you have that the pebble in your shoe activist mentality, I think. <laughs> so no, what, no, what? I can't get rid of it. I know it's terrible. I've always, I've always had this um, split personality where I, part of me wants to change the world. And the other one, the other part of me realizes that's prideful futility. And I should be trying to change myself instead. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not an activist in any obvious sense. No, but I mean, you know, having said that, all you know, the kind of writing I do is activism in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm putting ideas out there and, talking about what's wrong with things i mean i think you stop being an activist if you stop complaining about what's wrong with things which i don't seem to be able to do so <laughs> so yeah you're probably right that, that's you I, I hold up my hands you spotted my weakness <laughs> no I, I don't know if it's necessarily a weakness it's just something i've noticed um mm-hmm. okay a very specific question it's a bit of a left turn um so if this has been kind of a an arc of your whole life a theme that has come in various in various movements but always the same theme of connection community and 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 nature um how uh, a few years ago you um converted christian a few years ago i think or maybe it was this year converted to christianity well, it was this year actually um early in january that i was baptized yeah so wow oh wow so you're not even up on a year yet how no, do you I'm very very new i'm a baby huh. well we all are generally speaking <laughs> um how has that do you feel like that's begun to interact at all with the way you think about these things? Does it has it changed anything, or deepened anything, or or become a barrier to any of the ways you think about these things? Yeah, no, I think it's changed a lot of things. I, I'm still trying to work out quite what it's changed, and I think it's a, obviously it's a slow, long process because mm-hmm. you're walking a path. So I don't think it's anything I could analyze hmm. in great detail yet, but. You know, I didn't expect to become a Christian. I didn't want to become a Christian. I wrote mm. an essay about that earlier in the year. Um, it sort of crept up on me. Mm. I was doing sort of paganish things. I've always wanted to connect with the divine, whatever that quite meant. And I've always been looking for ways to do that through Buddhism or paganism. And, you know, if you're a modern Western person, you look everywhere except Christianity, basically, because <laughs> you just assume that that's <laughs> nothing to do with you. I do think a lot of the modern Western rebellion is really just a rebellion against Christianity, actually. Mm. disguised as something else we're 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 in rebellion against our ancestral faith Mm. Um, but of course the story of christianity is the story of rebellion against god so the more we rebel against it the more we're replaying the story by accident Mm. 
but yeah so I ended up becoming a Christian for all sorts of reasons I won't go into and um, and an Eastern Orthodox Christian as well because for some reason I got taken there and there's a great mysticism at the heart of that version of Christianity mm. and there's also uh, an emphasis on on God on the divine being imminent as well as transcendent mm. so the earth is you know that those um, to bring it back to the wild sublime you know what I'm experiencing up on the mountains is is God in the earth you know God mm. in nature God's presence the the energies of God in, in in the world which makes a lot of sense to me which means that everything I've always been doing has actually weirdly been a, a religious quest but I just didn't know it mm. And I think that's that actually is true. I've sort of been talking a religious language without religion for a lot of a lot of time. Hmm. So yeah, in a way, it's changed things. I mean, it's you know the, the the big story of Christianity is that the world is, you know, the the world. There's a plan. The world is coming to a conclusion. We're moving hmm. towards something. Um, everything is much more multi-layered and mysterious than you think it is. And and one thing it does do is confirm that that materialist way of seeing is wrong. Hmm. Which I thought anyway, but the Christian story about the fundamental state of humans, you know, fallen fallen beings who are endlessly trying to reach above mm. what they can get and are endlessly rebelling against God and endlessly having to be brought back again, but can also get back through their own will if they want to. Mm. You know, it's like there was a communion with the, the Garden of Eden story is so interesting to me because it represents a kind of primal communion between creation and creator mm -hmm. and us. And we're all together and we decide to break it and walk away because we'd rather have knowledge and power than communion. And that's pretty much the story of humanity, and that inevitably leads to climate change in the machine. Hmm. Then, you know, through Christ, there's a way back. There's a path you can walk, hmm. which is really what it comes down to. So it, it does change things a lot. In a way, it um, just makes the world a lot more interesting, but it also, you know, it it confirms for me the, the, the sort of arrival in the story, if you like, that hmm. confirms for me that the, the materialist story is wrong, which I always thought it was. Hmm. Which, yeah. in, a, in a way makes the, the whole thing less less disturbing in a weird mm. way it's, it's less it's less worrying that what's happening now because you don't think it's the be all and the end all of everything mm. what's going on here is part of something bigger mm. um and it's something we have to learn from actually and it's something we have to test ourselves against and mm. you know we have to walk through a fire it's hardly the first time people have been walking through the fire mm. that's kind of what christianity is designed for you know we're mm -hmm. all supposed to be carrying crosses we're all supposed to be walking through fires as you said earlier it's not supposed to be comfortable Hmm. We're not actually seeking comfort, and you can't get comfort in this world anyway, to some degree. Hmm. Even if you have a nice life, it's going to end. So, hmm. so yeah, I think it's it's shifted a lot of the way I see things. Um, it hasn't made my love of nature any less intense, but it has put it within a bigger, within a bigger picture. Hmm. Um, and it's also, I suppose, provided a spiritual framework, a spiritual story for what I suspected anyway. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, some people say, oh, you converted to Christianity. That's a weird thing to do. How did you do that? And <laughs> on the outside, it seems like a very strange thing, and I would never have imagined it happening. But from the inside, it sort of seems like a natural progression. It doesn't mm. feel like I suddenly adopted a strange worldview for mm -hmm. no reason. It feels like I came home to something I felt anyway. Mm. But I would never have understood it in, the, in, that, in that way, through that mm. sense. And I realized that a lot of my values and understandings and attitudes turned out to be Christian sure. anyway, actually. <laughs> it's true of a lot of us in the West, probably all of us really, mm. whether we know it or not. That's that's our culture, that's mm. our inheritance. It's so it that... doesn't look as much of a leap as it might look like sometimes. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's that, I'm going to botch the quotation, but it's the T.S. Eliot, you know, to be home is to arrive somewhere and recognize it, that you've been before, but recognize it. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. For it does, the first it time. does feel like that, doesn't it? And I've, you know, I've, I'm, I've heard since I wrote about it, I've, I've had a lot of 
emails from people who've said the same thing. Similar things have happened to them. It's not. It's, it seems to be a very common thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always I enjoy how you write about it because it's it. Um, I think there's a sense in which Christianity. It's funny. People often articulate it as like this very comforting. You know, it's just you know, the opiate of the masses, kind of comforting myth. Yeah. But and in my own experience, it's often it's something you kind of bump your head on, and then something that you don't necessarily want to be true, but then it is, and then when it is, it requires things of you, but then it also is comforting. But it's comforting in a more existential way, and in a way which reminds us that actually demands upon us and upon our lives um, are comforting if they're the right demands. And I think mm. that's that's one yeah. of the the problems of our yeah, time yeah. is that we yeah. have demands, complete demands made of us, but they're not the right demands. So it's better to carry a cross, but know that it's the thing that should be done than you know to carry the great ease and consumerism of the world and not be sure if if it's the right cost, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you're right. It's comforting in the sense that you believe there's a, there's a God who loves mm. you and you know, there's, that's real and there's a kind of divine plan and there's, there, there's a, there's a movement towards that something else. Um, but it's extremely uncomfortable the way you're sort of actually supposed to live. You know, mm-hmm. you're, as you say, you've got to carry these crosses. You've got to love your enemies. You've got to pray. You've got to go to church. You've got to treat people differently. You've got to, try and be a good person which is always a pain in the bum you know no one wants to do that <laughs> <laughs> ultimately uh, you know, it is hard work and i'm terrible at it but it's ultimately a lot more satisfying as well than than the consumer lifestyle which again everybody kind of knows hmm. after about five minutes is empty and horrible you know hmm. you can yeah you can have you can eat and drink and buy anything you want if you're lucky but yeah by the time you get to the age of 40 that's just empty and horrible so if it's Mm. not beforehand so it's so yeah it's it is interesting when people say it's a comforting story because as you say yeah it it is on the the big level but on the small level it's much harder you know it's 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 a lot of there's a lot of demands on you all the time and i I just wish i'd started 20 years earlier because i've just i've got got far too much to learn but there we are better late than never Mm. well as we're drawing to a close um i'll ask you is there anything that you've been reading or listening to lately that has that you've enjoyed that's enriched your perspective or helped you live outside the machine? Mm, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, my favorite recent novel is a book called Laurus by mm. Eugene Vodlaskin. You look like you've heard of it. I, I have it in my... Um, on the box I'm waiting to get from all my stuff has been wow, shipped, well, but really, it's great. It's a really, really good example of, I mean, somebody was asking me recently, you know, what does, what does Christian writing look like? What does mm. Christian art look like? And I, I just thought, well, I don't know. I don't, you know, I wouldn't call myself a Christian writer. I'm a writer who's become a Christian, but, mm. but you know, how does it, how does it affect your writing and the stories you tell is a really interesting question for me. I don't really mm. know yet, but that's a great example of a novel written by a Christian, and it's about medieval Russian Christianity mm. as well. But it's not at all anything proselytizing at all. It's just, it, but it's a terrific, otherworldly book about an entirely different way of seeing. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, that's that's my favourite novel at the moment, and there are various. Oh, I don't know. There's a, off the top of my head, I can't think of particular names, but there's a there's a fair number of interesting writers out there. I mean, I've referred to quite a lot of them on my. On my Substack uh, essay series, I've been going through a lot of the great writers from, mm. from Jacques Ellul to Simone Weil and mm. sort of digging back into the history of, of, of literature and thought to try and find out how we got here and where we mm. are. So there's, mm. a lot of, there's a lot of that going on. I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to do, I suppose, is um, 
in these essays I'm writing, I'm trying to distill my entire life's thought into these essays so I never have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I can stop going on about it. I don't know if it will work. But I'm trying to just, yeah, as I say, use a lot of other writers and a lot of examples and arguments and, and hmm. stories to try and try and work out how we got here from my perspective hmm. anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and where we can go instead. Um, because it's, you know, it's a, it's a disturbing time to be alive, but hmm. also an interesting one hmm. in a kind of dark way. <laughs> so there's a, lot, there's, there's a lot to think about. And, um, yeah, it's a yeah. interesting times, as the Chinese apparently say. <laughs> yes. So I guess that leads me also to where can people, if people have enjoyed this conversation, where can they find your work? I doubt that we can find you on social media. No, actually. Well, I do have a remnant Facebook page, but I'm going to have to delete that now that it's becoming the metaverse. <laughs> um, but no, you can't. I do have a website, which is paulkingsnorth.net, and I have um, a sub-stack page, which is called the Abbey of Misrule. That's mm -hmm. my little um, little domain, and I, as I say, I write an essay every couple of weeks about the, 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 the place where we are. So, yeah, that's what I'm up to at the moment, really. Excellent. Well, I hope people will go and, and check that out. It is much talked about in my little circle of the world and always, always interesting and beautifully written. So thank you so much for coming on um, to talk with me today. Um, much to ponder as I go back into the world. That's all right. Thank you. Thank you. Really interesting conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Speaking with Joy. And if you're a devoted listener, I hope that you have enjoyed all of these episodes exploring the themes in my book, Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. The book is out, at least in uh, the United States of America. So make sure to order your copy anywhere that sells books and be a pal and leave a review on Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes & Noble, or your own blog. Tune in next week for my final thoughts on the book, where we'll be looking at the final chapter, which is Give Yourself Away. And until then, I hope you have a lovely week. Remember to be joyful though you have considered all the facts. <laughs>